Ooh, I'm back. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the 10th TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. A massive thank you to Chris Darwin, the founder of TFA, for filling in for me over the past two days and what were two great episodes as the gang discussed the action from the weekend. The last 24 hours have thrown up some wonderfully exciting matches yet again, though, and of course, we're going to dig deep down into the tactics from each game. In this episode of the podcast, we will tactically review Croatia's cracking conquering of a colourless Canada, the gargantuan battle between a scintillating Spain and a gallivanting Germany, Serbia's calamitous collapse against Cameroon and South Korea's surprise comeback and then defeat versus Ghana in yet another can't-miss episode. We will also be previewing tomorrow's games as the group phase enters into the final round of fixtures to decide who will make it to the knockouts. There's lots to get into in this one, and I'm joined by Ronnie Dog Media's head of betting and affiliates, Lucas Mondelo, and Velez Club de Football's chief scout, and a former TFA man, Lee Scott, as we review the tactics from each of the four matches in yet another action-packed episode. Before we get into the tactics from each game, Lucas will be going through the latest odds on the betting market regarding each team, and so we ask that you make sure to gamble responsibly when taking our advice on board, and also make sure that you are over 18. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. Lucas, Lee, thanks so much for joining me today. And I'm very excited to hear all of your thoughts on the past 24 hours of World Cup action. We have a lot to get into, so I'm going to jump straight in and start with the game between Canada and Croatia. I was really excited for this match. I thought Croatia in their first game against Morocco were quite lacklustre and they were they, I mean, they didn't create too many chances. And the Canada, of course, were the complete opposite. They lost to Belgium, but they were really exciting. One of the most exciting teams at the World Cup in the opening round of fixtures. Pressing really high, creating a lot of chances. And ultimately, they didn't score, so they lost to Belgium. In this game, within, I think it was a minute and seven seconds or something, five seconds, Alfonso Davies scored a beautiful header. In back of the net, 1-0, scored Canada's first ever World Cup goal. And then things went quickly wrong for John Herdman's side. Lee, talk to me about what went wrong then with, with Canada and why Croatia were so so good in transition, I thought, which was really impressive. And I know John Herdman spoke about that after the game, that they just killed them in transition. Yeah, I think that to an extent, I mean, I, I was the same as you. I thought that Canada were excellent against Belgium. I was really looking forward to seeing them against Croatia. I've already been relatively negative on this podcast about Croatia and about the fact that they're looking aging, creaking, as if maybe one tournament too far. But what was really interesting, I mean, we knew what we were going to get from Canada. We were going to get aggression. We were going to get... They play very much in the transition phase. They they want to press high. They want to be aggressive. They want to be right up against the ball carrier in the build-up phase. And they want to make life difficult for you. But what the difficulty they had was that Croatia had the quality to play through the initial press. So when Canada were stepping right up towards the ball, when Croatia were building up, as soon as they bypassed that first line of press, Canada were incredibly disorganised against the ball behind that. Normally, when a team wants to play high-aggressive press in football, you have to organise your defence behind the press. You, you can't leave gaps and spaces the way that Canada did because a team who have the qualitative superiority in the way that Croatia did, they'll just get you know, on the ball in the midfield in the middle third and they'll break down your defensive block with no problem at all. And I think that's what we saw. Um, I think that the likes of Kovacic, especially with his ability to carry the ball in central areas, Canada had no answer to that. And I think that Croatia just broke them down almost at will. Um, it's difficult to watch because it was a little bit of naivety from Canada, thinking that they would come out and, and be able to play this way against Croatia. And then 
at the end of the day, I think it played right into Croatia's hands. And it, as John Herman said, Croatia just killed them in transition because they were able to play through the initial press so easily. Do you think playing, and I, I don't mean to sound disrespectful to this player because he, he's had a wonderful career ultimately, but they did start with a 29-year-old Atiba Hutchinson in the midfield. Do you think that it's maybe that wasn't maybe the best decision from Herdman considering the quality that Croatia possessed? Yeah, I think it's difficult. I think that he obviously wants to be um, respectful to Hutchinson and Hutchinson had a great career and been a stalwart the Canada side and he played really well in qualification to get Canada to this point. So he obviously thought he would stick with him up into the tournament. But there was a clear gap in quality. I think that even Steven Eustachio, the, the Porto midfielder who was beside Hutchinson, is a very good player. Um, you don't get a move to Porto if you're, you're not a very good player and a very good player technically with the ball. The same couldn't quite be said of Hutchinson. I think that he struggled to control gaps and control lanes to either side of him. Croatia were quite easily able to either bypass him with short, sharp passes down the sides or players were just turning him. Um, I think it gets to a point where a lack of mobility with players when you're playing this style of football. I mean, if Canada came out and were compact, even if when they pressed high, if they, they played a high defensive line, the midfield was compact, it would have helped Hutchinson because he wouldn't have been stranded in so yeah. much space. But as soon as the, the press was high, the defensive line was lower, the midfield was isolated, and players like Hutchinson just didn't have the mobility and the capacity anymore to deal with the speed and the way that Croatia broke them down. I agree also with a point you made earlier about Canada. You feel they are an ageing squad, and you think that maybe they went one tournament too far. Obviously, they reached the final in 2018, I watched them in the 2020 Euros, which of course was only last year, even though it was 2020 Euros. But I didn't, I wasn't overly impressed, with them, especially in that game against England. I remember at Wembley they were pretty woeful. Um, so going into this tournament, I wasn't overly excited to watch Croatia. We've, I think, we've seen plenty of Croatia to know that maybe they they won't go to the finals again four years later. But Lucas, I was impressed with them yesterday. So talk to me about their outright odds. Are they underdogs to win the tournament, or are we just? Basing this, you know, has has their odds changed ever since the 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 trashing of Canada yesterday? Well, Croatia is now the ninth most likely team to win in the eyes of the market, but still they have huge odds of four to six to one. I think it reflects not just how their group was pretty much balanced in terms of quality. But the situation with other teams too, and uh, but still, it's it's a big odd for a team that has played well yesterday the way they did. So you wouldn't recommend them putting putting ten euro on that now? Not really. I think it's the opposite because when you have odds as big as this, you can even you know bet on France, for example, and Brazil, and still have some you know extra pounds to you know just make a diversification and and, and bet like uh, kind of like to be safe because these outright betting action in, in in the world of professionals they often be you know bet on more than one team not exactly the same stake at you know all teams but it, it pretty much works this way Lee, you have a final point to make on canada before we move on to the next game yeah, I do. Um, I think that it's going to be it's interesting thinking about Croatia going forward if they are to qualify from this match. Um, people expected them to be more possession based in their attack. Obviously, they succeeded against Canada in transition, but 
I would be doubtful that they'll be able to do that against many more teams within the tournament because there aren't a lot of teams who leave you as much space as Canada. And what I found really interesting in the game, if you check the official FIFA stats after the match, that Canada actually had the lion's share of possession. They came out of the game with 46.9% to 41.6% for Croatia and then 115 in what FIFA now calls transitional moments where nobody's really in control of the ball. Um, I think it's interesting for this Croatia team to have came out against Canada, both of whom are trying to play possession uh, transition football, but they haven't managed to possess the ball as much as you would expect. I think against teams who are more organised and more dominant, we would need to see a different style from Croatia, and I still don't know if they have it. It is an interesting point, then. Obviously, they'll play Belgium in the next game, which is a huge match for them. They'll need to hopefully either pick up a, a draw or a win to progress to the knockout phase. Of course, Belgium are... In trouble at the minute. Roberto Martinez is getting heavy criticism, but of course we spoke about that yesterday with Chris and, and the gang, so we won't go into that. But we'll move on now to a team who I would call one of the favourites to win the tournament, and I'm sure the betting markets do too. Lucas, I'll come to you first. Talk to me about Spain, because after their 7-0 win against Costa Rica, I think they blew everyone away with their performance. They were absolutely scintillating. Costa Rica didn't land a blow on them. Against Germany, though, they drew one all. They were still pretty impressive. Has the market you know, swayed at all in terms of their them being favourites to win the competition outright? Yeah, they have started the tournament with bigger odds than they have right now. The only teams that had 7-1 to one on average as they have at the moment were France and England. And now you have them considered the third team most likely to win the Cup, you know, Brazil and France being the favorites and still the market sees them with more chances than Argentina, England, Germany, and Portugal, for example. Is that because of the, the, the route to the final though, as well? Well, I guess it has to do with some underperforming situations that we had mm. with Argentina and even Germany. So you don't have that many, you know, traditional teams doing that well in this tournament. And even England after the first victory, now, you know, collecting just one point against the U.S., I think it's it's more like a situation where we don't have as many, you know, traditional contenders as you would expect. Yeah. Lee, let's dive straight into the analysis then of this game because, in just in my opinion, I'm not sure about yours yet, of course, I'll come to you now, but it had a real um, club game feeling about it because they're both so... Spain especially don't feel like an international side. International side, like you look at England and, and and France and even Brazil to an extent, they feel very pragmatic at times. They can be quite conservative. You know, you saw England and the USA's game a few days ago. England were very much okay with a point. I, I feel that didn't really overexert themselves in the game. Spain, though, feel like a, a club. Like they they play together week in, week out. And I know some of them do, of course, Gavi and Pedri, etc., but they're, they're just unbelievable. But Germany, I thought, were pretty impressive too, yes, considering they lost 2-1 to Japan in the opening game. Talk to me about some, some interesting tactical details from the match that you noticed. Yeah, I think just to touch on Spain first and feeling like a club team, I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that they are perhaps the country in world football with the most recognised style. I mean, you could put both of these teams in completely different strips and, and just watch the patterns of play. You would know you were watching Spain play football. Yeah. Um, and that's got a lot to do with the work that the Spanish FA has done behind the scenes and in the background in terms of player and coach development over the last 12, 15, 18 years. And they're really seeing the fruits of that now. Um, I think from a technical 
perspective, the fact that the Spanish players are also comfortable in possession. There were, there were times that, like I said, Pedri would receive the ball when he's being pressed by two players, and he doesn't even move the ball conventionally. He'll almost be playing with the rear of the, the side of his foot, not his heel, not his toe, not the side of his foot, the rear of the side of his foot, and just flicking the ball back to a teammate at an angle you don't expect. And I think that when you have players who understand space the way that the Spanish do, they become very specific in the way that they play. I think you're right, Germany were, were much better. Um, but they were that's not get around. They were good against Japan for a long time. Um, it's just that Japan managed to get those two goals almost, you know, against the runner play to a point. Um, but again, I spoke about the, the Germany team before with Chris at the weekend on the podcast, and I'd made the point that if it was me, I'd be dropping Kai Havertz and pushing Muller up front. Obviously, that happened. Muller wasn't effective in that role. I think there's an I, I don't know. I know that Nicholas Fulkrug's getting a lot of love after coming off the bench. I'm still not convinced he's the answer for Germany as the nine. Um, much as it's a really nice story. But it was interesting, again, to see that the best players in the pitch were Pedri Gavi and Jamal Musiala from Germany. Um, they're three incredible players. I, I just want to actually touch on the point about Fulkrug. I want to ask you a question. Germany, for uh, several years now, this isn't just a new phenomenon. I mean, you're dating back to even when they won the World Cup in 2014 and they had Miroslav Klose, who was 36, I think, at the time, or 34, 35. He was, he was, quite, he was getting up there in age anyway. Why, why did they have a lack of centre-forwards in Germany, or top centre-forwards, I want to say? Because uh, you're right, I mean, they've had to go with Kai Havertz and then Thomas Muller, but even still, Thomas Muller's not an out-and-out centre-forward, I wouldn't call him that. That's why he's played mostly on the right as it, for, for his career or in the number 10 role. Yeah, this goes back further than that. I, I'm old enough to remember Oliver Bierhoff, who's now uh, with the German FA. Um, he was another one. Very effective striker, very good at Udinese when Channel 4 had Italian football and it was huge in the UK. Oliver Bierhoff was huge then. Um, but I think it's similar. When you talk about the problems that some countries have in terms of developing centre-forwards, it's the same thing with the likes of Barcelona, when you talk about La Masia. You talk about La Masia and it's all about technique and the ability to play and interconnect, but they don't develop players who have that streak in terms of scoring goals. That's why Barcelona will typically import their forward players from South America or in the moment from Poland, which nobody really sees coming. Um, Germany have the same issue. Um, there's a lot of good work done. That German FA are doing some great work in terms of youth development at the moment. They're, they're kind of copying parts of the Belgian framework and their own framework that they've obviously worked on for a long period of time. And it's a lot, all about short, small-sided games at the, the youth level as players are taught to be more comfortable with the ball. But what that does to a point, because you're taught to be comfortable with the ball and to play in connections and, and move the ball and shift the ball, you develop a whole lot of number eights, number tens, number sixes, fullbacks. Well, not fullbacks. You develop wingers, and then wingers, when they go into the academy system, some of those wingers will be converted to fullbacks, and that's why you now have fullbacks who are great going forward. What they don't have is that absolute out-and-out goal scorer. And they don't have that in the squad. I think there's a chance Yusuf Makoko of Dortmund could become that. Um, he shows excellent instincts, but at the moment, certainly with Kai Havertz, Thomas Muller, Fulkrug's a throwback. I mean, he, he is a, an Oliver Bierhoff type. Don't get me wrong, his finish was out of this world, the, the way that he got the power generated. Power. And Musiala had a chance very similar to it before, I think a couple of minutes did, before, yeah. and the keeper saved it, and then it was almost Fulkrug stepped up and just showed that kind of raw natural goal-scoring ability that they kind of missed. 
Yeah, and I think that you're absolutely right that that to a point. I mean, a lot's been made of the fact that Spain took on Alvaro Morata and Germany took on Nicholas Fulkrug and that they were the ones who scored the goals against the the kind of false nine approach that we saw beforehand. But that's not entirely true. I think when Spain took on Morata, yes, he scored the goal, but their press was far less effective in terms of stopping Germany from playing. And that is to a point why Germany were able to then get forward and get full crook into the game a little bit more. Morata's a good goal scorer. He's always been a good goal scorer. He's not a great goal scorer. He's not a great centre forward, but he's a good He's fifth on the Spanish ranking now of all time for goals. Yeah, and, and that says a lot. It says a, the thing is, what we're seeing now is a Spain side who aren't just passing the ball for passing's sake, which let's be clear they have in the past. I think they've won tournaments in the, before passing everybody to death. And as much as I love technical possession football, I can't watch it for 90 minutes when they, they have no intention of breaking a line. That's not the case anymore. They're breaking lines left, right and centre. I think Danny Olmo is almost the X factor for them in terms of the positions he takes up being almost un-Spanish, if you like, because obviously he moved early to Croatia then to Germany. He's kind of developed in a, in a way in a school that's different to a lot of the, the Spanish players and you can see that. But I think that when Murata came on and when they were less effective with the press in the front line, Germany were then able to turn the screw a little bit. And Germany have real quality throughout their squad. And the fact that they're still able to call upon players like Gundogan and, and Kimmich, who had a great chance himself, and Musiala, as you touched upon, I think Musiala should have squared it for his chance. To be yeah, sure. I was but, roaring at the TV at the time. Yeah. But then his feet in terms of receiving the ball in tight areas with Busquets, Gavi, Pedri buzzing around him. And he would receive the ball and be able to shield the ball and shift it quickly, winning free kicks for Germany high up the pitch. Then Germany's real strength, I thought, thought was in the wide areas when I thought they didn't quite do enough to get at them. I think when Leroy Sané came on, we saw points again. I know Sané's not fully fit, but I'd like to see them try and get Sané on the ball more in this tournament because the way that he plays for Bayern at the moment, um, always in a slightly different role, is so effective. And I think that's where Germany could start to break teams down. And I do love watching Sergio Busquets. I mean, even though he's, he's nearing his mid-30s, watching him is incredible. And I love that quote from, I think it's Vincente, uh, Vincente de Bosque, who says, when you watch Busquets, you see the whole game. I think that's a lovely quote. And it is so true. He he is, he, he thinks three steps ahead. You can see, you know, he, he sees the game before anyone else. He sees what's going to yeah. happen. And I think that's obviously true, working with some incredible coaches, but also through his own and just footballing intelligence. You know he's a, he's an absolute joy to watch, and he, he uh, according to reports, he's going to into Miami alongside Lionel Messi. So Phil Neville will have a, a big job on his hands there. With I don't think Phil could quite know what to do. But I think it, it was difficult for Germany because in the first half they were trying to press Spain, and they were trying to press with a three, and because Spain have Busquets who can receive the ball under any amount of pressure, he's press resistant, yeah. So the fact that he was then dropping into those spaces, he was able to drop into the little gaps between the, the German press to receive the ball. And then he just receives the ball so nicely and moves it on. And the same with Pedri and Gavi. What what you see from them in any footballer, any young player who's watching Spain play, watch the position, the body position that those two take up to receive the ball when they're building up. They're always on the half turn. They're mm-hmm. always in a position to receive. And when they receive, they then can open up and play really quickly. That's not something that's easy to do, especially when you're coming under pressure, when you're young, playing at a high level. And the fact that the Spanish teach their players to do this at such a young age makes them so com- comfortable in the ball. 
I think that Spain tried to use Unai Simeon a little bit, their goalkeeper, and build up, but some of his passing out was a little bit questionable. It was more David De Gea than, than perhaps Mark Terstegen, if you, if you like. But at the same time, because they have Busquets, they're still able to create those superiorities, which was helpful. And just touching on that really quickly, Paul Scholes mentioned before, I think it was in an interview on the overlap of Gary Neville, that the best midfielders in the world receive the ball on the half turn. And he said he gets quite angry when he sees midfielders not doing that. And I think he's uh, there's, there's obviously a reason why people like Pep Guardiola and Xavi admired Paul Scholes as a player, because he was that guy. He would always receive on the half turn. But we'll move on just quickly uh, to Germany. Lucas, has their odds changed then since yesterday's performance? Because it's a big result for them ultimately and all they have to do now is beat Japan or not sorry apologies not Japan uh, beat Costa Rica in the next match and they should be true the Rods have recovered to the point they were around the beginning of the tournament of course they had become a lot different after the first loss against Japan but you can pretty much say that the markets believe in on them again yeah I think if Japan obviously well I'm, I'm basing my my opinion on Japan not being able to get a result out of Spain because Spain have looked so so decent so obviously if Germany if, if Spain do take points off Japan and Germany beat Costa Rica which they should we should see Germany in the knockout phase even though they've only picked up one point so far but we'll move on to the first game this morning which was a thriller between Cameroon and Serbia Jean-Charles Castelletto opened the scoring for Cameroon before Pavlovic and Milinkovic Savic scored uh, twice just before the break and then Alexander Mitrovic made it 3-1 in the 53rd minute. And then out of nowhere, <laughs> Vincent de Bubacar scored one of the cheekiest goals I've ever seen uh, watching a game live. It was genuinely amazing. He believed he was offside. He wasn't. The referee said play on. And then Chupo Moting, who's on fire this season, it's his 11th goal, I believe, in all competitions for club and country, has you know equalised for, for Cameroon against Serbia. Lee, I'll, I'll come to you quickly on, on Cameroon. When I watch Cameroon, I get frustrated because I don't believe they're their system from a defensive standpoint is, is plausible to progress any further in this tournament. I watched that game earlier and I, of course I love goals and I love entertainment but I just couldn't help but think what Brazil would do to that midfield and back line constantly dragging them out of position. They're really, they man-mark very tightly but they can get ripped to shreds with that movement. Yeah, I, th- I think defending was very much optional for large parts of this game. It was it was interesting. We've seen the same with the match just finished. There were a number of goals against South Korea, against Ghana. I think it finished 3 2. Um, but Cameroon, I think, are suffering to an extent as well from the fact that their coach has fallen out with Andrew Onana. Um, obviously, he's been sent home. Yeah, he's been sent home, told to go home. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, I, I understand that a coach has to be able to trust his players to follow his instructions. I believe that Rigobert Song was was unhappy because Onana said he still wanted to play with his feet a little bit too much. He expected the goalkeeper to perform more as a traditional goalkeeper, if you like. But on the basis of this game, playing as a traditional goalkeeper didn't help very much. So really all you've done is unsettle your squad to an extent before going into the second group game and obviously the third group game. Um, oh, well... I agree that Cameroon were poor defensively. I mean, this is a team who, who don't forget that they have real quality throughout. I think that Zambo Anguissa of Napoli is a, a absolutely fantastic footballer who would grace a lot of national teams since he went to Napoli. He's just gone from strength to strength. But he's been largely anonymous. And at Napoli, he plays very much a screening role with that ability to protect the defensive line. 
we haven't seen that. But the difficulty that Cameroon had in this game, defensively, I think, came quite a lot from the way that Serbia set up with their, their wing-backs. I mean, this I've talked in the podcast so far in this World Cup before about how I don't like back threes. Um, I don't like Belgium's back three. I don't like the Netherlands' back three. I don't like the way they build up Denmark in the first game as well until obviously they moved Christian Eriksen centrally and it got a bit better. Um, Serbia, I think, are playing a back three really well and really interesting. But that's because they play wing-backs who don't bother defending. Mm. Um, their wing-backs push really high in almost all phases of the game. Philip Kostic is a winger who's been converted to a wing-back and he's extremely effective in that role. And Zivkovic is just a winger. He's not even a winger converted to a wing-back. He doesn't have any desire to play wing-back. And what was interesting was that when they did that, they they stretched Cameroon out. Cameroon couldn't sit compact after that. So because the wing-backs were playing so high, the full-backs for Cameroon had to play outside a little bit more than they wanted to. Mitrovic is obviously a real focal point, but then Milinkovic-Savic was able to push right up from the eight-roll around and Mitrovic in transition and when Serbia wanted to go a little bit longer and progress the ball into that final third. And those were the areas that Serbia had real strength. I, I really think that if Strahinja Pavlovic doesn't come off injured in the second half for Serbia, I think they see that game out. But when he came out, the two of the, the final two Cameroon goals both came from his position and he would have been there to, to sweep that up for me. And he does look like a very decent player, I'm sure. There'll be a lot of clubs, elite clubs around Europe that will be looking at him ahead of January or potentially the summer. Obviously, usually the, the players will perform well in the summer and then they get a move then after. But of course, the World Cup is in November and December now, so maybe he'll move in January, maybe not if a, if a bigger club wants him. Lucas, were you surprised by how... Um, I don't want to... Yeah, well, like, I mean, they can see three goals. They can say poor Serbia were considering... In the first half, especially against Brazil last week, I thought they were pretty solid until the second half. And obviously, you watched that; you would have watched that game. Well, I guess that I personally expected a little more from Serbia. We we had this expectation of seeing them in the first game against Brazil with two strikers and Kostić, and this never happened. And then with Cameroon, it, it felt like almost as if it was their turn, but because they were going to face a team without so much fear tactically, but it just didn't happen for them in terms of winning the game. And uh, I tend not to like much games in which teams forget about the importance of defending. And it feels like it was, okay, interesting to to watch, but it uh, doesn't show much much of a solid you know approach from both teams, I guess. Switzerland can can qualify even if they don't collect points against Brazil today. Every team can qualify now from this group, and 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 actually that's probably an over, you know, an overall point to make about the World Cup. There are so many groups where all four teams can qualify. You look at England's group as well, which is um something I found very interesting to watch. Maybe not England, but um, certainly the rest of the teams. You know, it, there's so many groups like this one where it's four teams can qualify, which will make the the, the, the final round extremely extremely interesting and then of course the last game we had today was South Korea and Ghana Ghana were excellent in the first half I was really uh, I was really disappointed with South Korea because they started well first five ten minutes thought they kept possession well they looked they looked like they were going to really take the game to Ghana try break their lines hold the ball counter press win it back sustain attacked and then Ghana scored from 
you know, a, a set piece through to Mohamed Salisu, who who I really like. He's an excellent player with Southampton. Four Southampton players scored World Cups since yeah, yeah, Jan Bednarek in twenty eighteen, and then Mohamed Kudus, who is absolutely amazing. I wrote a scout report on him recently for the TFA magazine. I think it was the month before last. He his output under. Uh, Alfred Schroeder this season is so much better than last season. He was a bit of a utility player last season on Eric Ten Hag. He played as a winger. He played as an eight, uh, a ten at times. Schroeder made him a centre forward, and he's in the double figures already for goals for club and country this season. But he and hates then, it. Yeah, <laughs> he hates playing up front. He's been quite very vocal about it. He yeah. wants to play as an eight or a ten. He doesn't want to play up front. He also thinks he's as good as Neymar. I don't know if you saw that. But... And he got very annoyed at the Guardian when they. Uh, and I read the article. Like, uh, you know, I saw his comments. I read the article. They just quoted him verbatim for what he said, and it was very much, "I'm on par with Neymar." Is <laughs> basically the, the result of his comments. Yeah, it was. Um, it's very strange. He's also not a player who lacks in confidence. I actually spoke about Kudus years ago now, uh, on on the Scout Football podcast. He was a player that I picked out when he was still playing at Nordsjælland just before he signed for Ajax and even back then you could see he was a player and two more goals today um, I think he's very much looking like along with Shahinja Pavlovic who we just talked about for Serbia I think Kudus is very much a player who's coming out of this tournament as one of the breakout stars um, I can see him getting a big money move to a Premier League club I know that Liverpool fans keep making noise that they would like to see him but I think they might be a little bit surprised by what they get Mm-hmm. You, you, I mean, to a point, you are getting almost a Firmino type because he, he drops off the front line, but that's because he doesn't want to be there. It's not quite yeah. the same as Firmino. And I think um, Everton tried to sign him in the summer. They yeah. were pretty close, and then and then thankfully he didn't go because what a mess they are right now. Um, Frank Lampard haven't playing left back, but we'll move on to previewing the games for tomorrow. Then Lucas, talk to me then about the Netherlands, Qatar, Ecuador, and Senegal and the odds. You know, who are the favourites going into these games? Because, again, this is another very tight group, apart from Qatar, who are, you know, the, of course, the hosts and made a pretty bad account of themselves in the first two matches. I can't imagine they'll take a point off the Netherlands, although I could be wrong. What does the market say? Does does it give them any chance at all? Yeah, nobody really seems to expect that, I guess, you have odds of 16-1 to 1 for the victory of Qatar. And even though... Netherlands may have underperformed in the eyes of many. They are still expected to collect the points they need, and which would make Ecuador Senegal a very exciting game to watch, especially as Ecuador has been performing well considering their history and, and the potential that everyone knew they had. It should be an interesting one. I think I'm going to watch Ecuador Senegal instead of Netherlands Qatar. <laughs> I think so too. Lee, talk to me about Ecuador and Senegal then, because this is a huge, huge match and it may not stand out to many people as a clash of the titans, but it's certainly a very important game. Winner takes all, essentially. Yeah, and I think that going into this point in the tournament, if you talked to Senegal and said that you would be in position to qualify in the last match, they haven't lost Sadio Mane, mm-hmm. they would probably have been happy about that. Um Obviously, we haven't seen the best of them, I don't think. I think Senegal, I think Morocco have been the best African side at the tournament so far um, from a qualitative standpoint. But if you look at the Senegal squad, they've got an awful lot of talent. But at the same time, so do Ecuador. Ecuador, again, are one of the dark horses coming in. Ener Valencia, the, the World Cup man who only comes alive every four years, obviously performing extremely well. But the Brighton you know, club of um, of 
Casiero and Estupinan, I think have really impressed. And again, Angel Preciado, um, the the right back who plays right wing at club level in Belgium because they don't think he's defensive enough to play right back. I think that the two teams are very evenly matched when you look at it from a squad point of view. When you look at their performances so far in this tournament, they're very evenly matched. Neither side has has had a game where they've been awful. They, they've struggled at points in the tournament, of course they have, but they've also looked very solid and very strong and as if they were well-drilled, well-coached and well-prepared, which goes a long way when it comes to this point. I mean, we're getting to the point now, the first two group games are always a little bit variable in the World Cup, but by the time you get to the third place game, it's quite often knockout football from that mm-hmm. point because no matter what happens, if you're already out, you're already out, but a lot of teams have got a lot riding on this. And if Ecuador or Senegal can come through this game, they've got a very good chance of actually getting through the next phase as well because who's going to come through the group with England? I think England are realistically going to win the group. Yeah. Second place, if you Ecuador or Senegal will fancy themselves against any team who finishes second place in the England group. I agree. And the Netherlands can still be knocked out if they lose heavily to Qatar, of course, and Ecuador and Senegal can draw then, and then, of course... That would be the most Louis Van Hal thing of all time (laughs) that actually happens. I'll miss miss Van Hal. I want him to stay in the competition for as long as possible. His press conferences are absolutely golden at the minute. Uh, Lucas, I'll come to you then, just we'll quickly uh, talk about Group B, which is tomorrow night's game, uh, kicking off at 7pm UK time between Iran and the USA, and Wales and England. Wales will need to beat England heavily, uh, I think 5 0, they've, they've to claw back at least in order to um, progress to the next round, or else they'll need to ensure that Iran and USA draw and they pick up uh, a nice win against England. Talk to me about the favourites then going into those two matches. Well, in the, in the game USA, Iran, you have a more balanced situation. The market expects the US to be favourites. But uh, Iran has been considered, let's say, capable of collecting points too. And uh, in Wales, England, you have a clear situation with England being favourites with odds of 1.45 on average for the victory. And uh, it's perhaps one of the most interesting situations that we have in, in the final rounds to to a group stage here. And I only wonder who you will support, Adam. I imagine Lee is going to be as Welsh as it gets, right? <laughs> I'm definitely going to watch around USA. I won't even bother putting the notifications on for the, the Wales and England game. Lee, I'll actually come to you on the Iran-USA game because I, I think Wales need a miracle, obviously. Well, I know they need a miracle tomorrow. There's so many different factors have to go their way in order for them to progress out of the group phase. And they have to be England heavily, which I just cannot see. Talking about Iran and USA, then, because tactically that's a really interesting battle in USA. I would expect to dominate possession. Iran, I expect to sit deep and counter attack. And it's looking um, maybe not like the most exciting game entertainment wise, but certainly tactically. I don't know. I think that the USA have probably been one of the most pleasing and surprising teams in the tournament. I, I didn't expect a lot coming into it from them. I think they've been better than I gave them credit for. And, mm-hmm. and that is down to the almost unique way they play with their midfield. I mean, against England, nobody expected Weston McKenney to decide who's going to play on the right side of midfield in almost a 4-4-2 shape. And some of the combinations between Dest, Timbuya and McKenney were really good coming up that side. I think that they were well prepared and they planned well for it. I think that they obviously have a unique engineer, if you like, in, 
and the central midfielders that they have, Yunus Musa, again, has been one of the revelations of the tournament for me. Um, the problem that the US have, and it's something that they knew coming to the tournament, was that they struggle for a nine. They struggle to find a, a real source of goals. Obviously, Tim Way has already got one and took it well, but their nines just haven't been there. Has you right played in the game against England and didn't impress. Um, Christian Pulisic is looking like a player who's very low in confidence and I think that'll have a, a great impact I do think that the US will have possession, I think the key will be in moments of transition when Iran win the ball back in their final third if they can play quickly and hit those gaps where the, the American fullbacks are because mm-hmm. both Anthony Robinson and Sergio Dest will go high quickly in possession and, and look to provide width and attack the outsides if Iran could hit those wide areas and get the ball around the strikers to to Tarimi and Asmoon, who have already proven that they're they're very interesting strikers. Obviously, at European level, they're both extremely extremely good. Um, I think that's where Iran could have some joy. But I, I do have USA edge in this game. To be honest with you, I think that the way that they've played the first two group games, I think they deserve it. I think they deserve a last sixteen place. I would say though that if they get through the, the round of 16 and they come up against an Ecuador or Senegal I think that might prove a step too far from them. Yeah and as I said this is a really interesting game from a tactical point of view and your point about the advanced fullbacks and then Iran taking advantage of that is very fair because you saw against Wales that they were constantly making those channel runs in between the centre the, the three centre backs and Asmund was killing them I remember at one point I ran one the ball in the low block, went back quickly, played it through. We went right between uh, Ben Davies, I think, and the central defender who I can't remember his name now. And as we went latched onto it, hit the post at the near at the near post, but it was a, a wonderful move within one pass. Um, yeah. I think in transition they can be deadly. Obviously, with Sardar Asmi on back now, they're much much better because beforehand in the five four one it was just Taremi and he just looked hopeless on his own. But they look more like a threat now, so I'm looking forward to seeing this game. Lucas, Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great show. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. And make sure to tune in tomorrow as we tactically preview the final round of group stage fixtures with some stellar games to come, so make sure to check back in for that and share the podcast too as it really helps us grow. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now. <laughs>